0: According to the writer to the Hebrews, Christ has appeared once for all at the climax of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, so also Christ, having offered up himself for sin once for all will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save all those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Hebrews 9, 26 to 28. The Son of God appeared once in history primarily to die for sins, so that all those who trust in Him might no longer perish but have the hope of new and eternal life. And then He's going to come another time at the end of the age, not to atone for sin and not to purchase redemption, but rather to complete and perfect the redemption He's begun, to complete our deliverance from all evil and all sin. And what I want to do this morning is to talk for just a few minutes about the second coming and its significance for believers and unbelievers alike before we celebrate the communion together and try to show how the two are related. When Jesus came the first time, it was not his purpose to divide or condemn. His purpose was to reconcile and to save, John told us in chapter 3. But inevitably, the division has happened, hasn't it? So that Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Father and Son will be divided a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. And that's been the case ever since Jesus came. That division has happened wherever the gospel has been preached. And I think that that division is simply a picture and a warning of the final division that is going to happen at his second coming. The text of the morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter one, and if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to that again and look at it in more detail with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verses three through 10. Here we have one of the fullest explanations or descriptions of what the second coming will mean for believers and unbelievers as anywhere in the New Testament. When Paul wrote this second letter to the Thessalonians, he was writing to Christians who were being abused in various ways by unbelievers. And so he wants to encourage them. And the way he does it, first of all, in verse 5, is to remind them that their suffering "...is not a token of God's anger, but rather it's a sign of His loving justice because by it He is refining them so that they might be made worthy of the kingdom for which they're suffering." This is an evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering." So don't view your suffering and your persecutions as a token of God's disfavor. On the contrary, view it as what a loving father does in trying to prepare his children to fully enjoy the coming kingdom. Then in verses 6 following, he goes on to assure them that the tables are going to be turned. Things will not go on the way they are. Your affliction will be turned into rest and their disobedience will be turned into punishment and that will happen at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Let's read it together. God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at in all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Here we can see perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in the New Testament what the second coming is going to mean for believer and unbeliever. Three observations sum up the significance of Christ's coming for the believer. First of all, Christ is going to be revealed with a host of mighty angels in flaming fire. The picture here surely is one of an irresistible heavenly army, the Lord of the universe, returning to his world to settle accounts with the tenants of his earth, as Jesus described it in the parable. There will be no escape, no recourse, no place to hide, and above all, no possibility to withstand for the unbelievers. As Malachi described it, and as Georg Friedrich Handel in the Messiah immortalized it, Who can stand? Who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire. For the unbeliever, then, the second coming will mean no defense and no escape. Secondly, the unbeliever will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Verse 9. Or as verse 6 says, He will be repaid With affliction. Jesus had warned that it would be this way, didn't he? In the great parable of judgment in Matthew 25, in that last verse, verse 46, he said to those who had spurned the messengers of the gospel repeatedly, They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The romantic notion that I have heard even this week in talking with people that Mercy will go on and on and on indefinitely to those who spurn the gospel and reject the offer of salvation. He's going to be shown to be sham at the second coming. That romantic notion will be blown to smithereens at the second coming of our Lord Jesus. The meek and the lowly Jesus of Nazareth is going to come like the roaring lion of Judah and rend his foes. The Jesus who wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem and laid his life down for sinners is going to come and lay waste his enemies who have spurned eternal life. And the destruction will be eternal. Third, According to verse 9, unbelievers will be excluded from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, of course, that's no great threat to an unbeliever. He's devoted his whole life to running away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Picture two men in a totalitarian regime. One of these men is a single man, and one is married and has a a wife and three small children, whom he loves with all his heart. There's a secret police in this land who has been instructed to take these two men and dispose of them in a camp far away with labor and torture and so they do it and they break into the apartment of the first man and drag him away and he weeps as he imagines what the pain and what the emptiness of the next months may bring and then they approach the apartment of the second man where he's at table with his wife and with his children laughing and they break in the door And they clamp the cuffs on that man's hand, and they tell him, you'll never see them again, and drag him out. And he weeps too, but his imagination of the pain and the torture is utterly overwhelmed by the prospect of being alienated and never seeing again the face of that wife and the faces of those dear children. Paul is writing as a man who loves Jesus Christ more than any man in this room loves his wife and more than any woman in this room loves her husband. And that's the way we ought to love Jesus. So that the prospect of being put away from his face should be the most dreadful thought that we can imagine as it was for Paul. And so, in summary, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to mean for unbelievers a confrontation with an irresistible army who prove to be enemies. And second, condemnation to eternal destruction. And third, exclusion from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. But what now will it mean for believers, according to this text? Those who are following after Christ in the obedience of faith. The text focuses on two things. First, rest. And second, amazement. The word for rest here in verse 7, God will grant rest to you along with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, the word for rest there means release or relief. For example, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.5, using this word, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, fighting without and fear within. But Jesus said... Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have a foretaste of the comfort and the rest and the release from burden that is going to be ours fully at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But while we are left in this earth, there remains a race to run and a fight to fight the fight against the flesh. The flesh which would always tempt us to put our hope in something we achieve or we have instead of putting our hope in the mercy of Jesus. And that is a fight to the end so that Paul said, I have completed my course, I have finished the race. Now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The second coming, though, is going to mean the complete Laying aside of every burden and every struggle, everything physical and everything spiritual that has made life seem unlivable will be gone in the twinkling of an eye at the return of our Lord. Rest and release are basically negative ideas. They mean the absence of things wearisome or troublesome. But surely we ought not to think of the second coming of Jesus only in terms of what we're not going to experience. Paul here makes it very clear that he foresees something tremendously positive that we are going to experience. Namely, verse 10. Christ is coming to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at by all who have believed. One of the most exhilarating experiences in life is to see a wonder or a marvel that is so beautiful and astonishing that we are utterly amazed and speechless before beauty. And that's the way it's going to be when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in all His glory. Listen to this little parable from Jesus. The kingdom of heaven shall be compared to ten maidens who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom delayed, as he has delayed, hasn't he? They all went to sleep and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him! And so we will. The dead in Christ shall rise first, Paul said, and then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. Like five young, excited maidens, just woken, awaked, out of sleep, with wonder and awe, spilling over in their hearts. They dart out to meet the bridegroom and do cartwheels before him as he comes back into his kingdom. Do you remember the day that the POWs were released? Do you remember seeing on one side of the deck that wife who had waited six years while she didn't know if he was alive or dead? And as he walked, out on the other side and started across that deck behold the bridegroom comes come out to meet him and she did and the whole world watched that embrace most of us probably with tears that's the way it's going to be for those who love is appearing Paul said henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who loved His appearing. If we love Jesus, we're going to love His appearing. Do Do you love the prospect of the coming of the Lord Jesus as much as that wife loved the appearance of her husband out of that door after six years of separation? If you don't, pray. Pray earnestly that Christ might reveal Himself to you in His Word so that you can see Him for who He is and love Him with all your heart, because you will love His appearing if you love Him. There is nothing that anybody in this room is planning for this afternoon or next year or ten years from now that is anywhere near comparing, worth comparing with the coming of Jesus Christ. So in sum, the meaning of the second coming for believers is twofold. He will give rest and relief from everything in this world that has caused us grief or depression or weariness. And second, even more, He will grant us to be filled with the joy of amazement as we look on Him face to face in all His gracious glory. Now, what does that have to do with this meal that we're about to partake of? Let's go back and create a story in the POW camp. There are 12 men in the concentration camp in North Vietnam, Americans, huddled together in one hut. They've been there for six years. By some strange turn of affairs, they've been able to be in touch with the American troops. And they've been instructed that if they could be at a certain point, at midnight, on a certain night, a helicopter could dash in and pick them up. And so they plan. And what they plan is somehow to explode a hole in this fence and get out. And they are able to get a hold of a timed detonating device which, when it's set, will explode in 24 hours. Now, in front of this fence, there are coils of barbed wire and then a small space. You've got to get over the barbed wire to plant the device under the fence because it won't move it if it's in front of it. One of the men volunteers, the only one who has no children. He's going to plant the device. They're going to set it the night before so that they can be ready on the second to go when it blows. So the night before, he gets a running start and makes it over the coil of wire and plants the device under the fence. But he cannot get back over the wire. He can't get a running start. So he crawls quietly as he can along the edge of the fence looking for an opening. And he's spotted and shot to death. And the guards come over and they find what hut he's from. And they laugh and pick him up and throw him at the door of this hut as a lesson to the other eleven, lest they try anything so stupid. When the guards leave, the eleven open the door and drag him in and dig a small, shallow grave and bury him in the ground And then they have a little memorial service for him while his blood is still fresh on the ground and his rent flesh is still visible in their eyes. And as they cry and think about his death, something very strange happens. Mingled with that grief and that recollection of what has just happened, horrible as it was, Hope and expectation start to arise in their hearts because they know this was no ordinary death. Through this death, a hole is going to be exploded in that prison and freedom and release and reunion with those they love are on the way. And that's what this meal means, primarily. This was no ordinary death that we commemorate, was it? The death of Jesus Christ was the explosion that is going to open the way for the second coming.